Listen now for God's word to you and for you from the book of Numbers. We'll be reading verse. And so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out of the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them, And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we got civilized and we started meeting in auditoriums on the campus of retreat centers that are staffed by permanent professionals, before there was a montreat, there was camp meeting. I know what you're thinking because I was certain that us, orderly, modest and always pre-registered Presbyterians did not have any camp meeting in our ecclesiastical bloodline. I passed through a couple camp meetings as a teenager when my crew, we dabbled in Pentecostalism for a season after we discovered that the youth group at the Pentecostal church down the street had a disproportionate number of females in its membership. (laughs) Now, I wouldn't do it now, but as a teenager that was guided more by hormonal pragmatism than a devotion to principle, I had no problem forsaking the denomination that baptized, confirmed, and would one day ordain me. During my brief, very brief season with the Pentecostals, I went to camp meeting that summer for two days, and the experience scared me straight back to my predictable Presbyterian church. I don't know if you've been to camp meeting, but camp meeting was way too much for me. I had gotten used to regular Sundays at the Woodruff Church of God, where Every Sunday felt like a reenactment of Pentecost. But when the Church of God went to camp meeting, it was too much for me. It was too ecstatic, too unpredictable 
way too evangelical for a Presbyterian. The worship, it went on for hours and it was actually outdoors under a tent. I kept asking for a bulletin. Nobody could produce it. I kept listening to the sermon, waiting for it to end after 20 minutes. Instead of all I'd grown accustomed to, instead, the Holy Spirit kept showing up. So you can understand my surprise when I learned this week that it was us, or at least those of us in here that are Presbyterian and Methodist and Baptist, it was us that brought the tradition of camp meeting over from Scotland and Ireland, and popularized it here during the Second Great Awakening, way back in the early 19th century. You know, we used to lay people down in the spirit. It appears that there was a time when we also worshipped without a program, in a manner that was unpredictable at a location that would be determined at the last minute. And was filled with music that was made up as we went along. Apparently, there was a time when we allowed the Holy Spirit to actually be mentioned on Sundays other than Pentecost. And we valued the gifts of itinerant preachers who were, or we valued the gifts of preachers who were more itinerant than ordained. You may think I'm making this stuff up, but I'm not. There are numerous, reputable, firsthand, historical accounts of a time when the Presbyterians were promoting a nationwide movement to not take yourself too seriously in church. Which brings us to Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses and the unfortunate antagonist in our scripture reading this morning, when God got out the tent and the Holy Spirit in its lavish abundance spilled over onto Eldad and Medad, both of whom were registered but not technically up in the tent with the other 70 elders, Joshua, Joshua son of Nun, asked Moses to intervene before something else unpredictable, disorderly, and uncontrollable happened before a Presbyterian-style camp meeting spontaneously set off. Moses, do something, he pleads. God got out our tent, and now two more people Then the 70 we agreed on earlier are speaking with authority. Moses, do something, he begs. God got out the tent, and if we're not certain where God is going to show up next, how can we prepare an itinerary for God in advance? Moses, do something, he says. God got out of our tent and is loose on the streets which is against the rules. (laughs) And if we don't have rules and 
tame God now. The sacred wind of the Holy Spirit might start blowing wherever and whenever it pleases. And let's be honest, nobody wants that to actually happen. At first, I tried to ignore him as a sideshow, but I could not. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant of Moses, is not some primitive character confined to history. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses, is not a religious Neanderthal from which we evolved into something more futuristic and faithful. I don't know about you, but I recognize Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses. I am well acquainted with him. I know how much he is threatened by the imperfection of a number, like 72, which is two more than they planned for. I can empathize with the elemental anxiety that sends him running to Moses. When God gets out the tent or ignores our rules and overwhelms our small expectations and refuses to cooperate with our five-year strategic plans, then people with named authority in the tent that God won't stay in, people like me, a preacher, and Joshua, the assistant to Moses, and maybe some of you that are comfortable in the tent, well-connected in the tent, and can't imagine why God would want to show up anywhere else besides in the tent. People like us, we, we get scared. We'd like to say, me, Dodd, L-Dot are our partners in ministry, but you know when the mics, when the mics are turned off and the robes are returned to their closets and after, after the sun sets on Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, which means next week we get to return to more modest expectations for God that are manageable and just, just coincidentally the same size as our intellect next weekend, and when it gets quiet enough to notice how long we have been holding our own breath out of fear that the Holy Spirit might notice us and demand something drastic that isn't on our calendar, if we're able to stay suspended in the discomfort of noticing that the Spirit has no regard for the tense that we have erected and the rules that we have enacted and the requirements we try to enforce then, then we may be able to admit that we regard the Medods and the Eldods as threats to be eliminated and shoved underground, away from the tent in this endless game of whack-a-mole. When God gets out the tent, those of us still in it can't help but question if our tents were as special 
as we thought they were. Now we should not be surprised. God is persistently setting us up for moments like this one. The book of Numbers is a narrative metaphor for the real life experience of watching our established systems go sideways just when we were growing accustomed to them. The Holy Spirit consistently has terrible timing. Numbers gets its name from the first 10 chapters of the book. It is a tedious stretch of scripture to read, kind of like the annual reports that churches produce. Now, now you will read your own because the, 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 the numbers and the names, they mean something to you, but nobody really enjoys reading random church annual reports, do they? The Hebrew people, like us, were determined to keep accurate membership roles and celebrate growth and thank all the people that served on the building committee. All of that is set in an orderly account before the Holy Spirit begins begins disrupting the ledgers. Now, in the first third of the book, there is a comprehensive genealogy. And after that, there is the detailed results of a census. The number of warriors per tribe is noted. They've got 603,550. The number of priests in each family is put down. And after that, there's a long list of people who made contributions to the capital campaign, which for them was a definitive list of the offerings made by men, just men, on the day the tabernacle was completed and the worship furniture was consecrated. Now, what makes the first third of numbers compelling is that the report was not commissioned and completed while they were bored and looking for something to do. They actually did it while they were wandering in the wilderness. It's as if they were attempting to bring order and predictability to what was a chaotic and unscripted journey. Now we do the same thing I'll tell you, I'm not at church right now where I serve, so I can tell you anything I want about them. I'll tell you, after messy meetings of our own church leadership team, our session, that leave me exhausted and confused and not sure if I'm coming back to work tomorrow, I will often read the minutes, the ledger of notes about the meeting a few weeks later, and notice that nobody took notes for the messy part. All the messy parts of the meeting in the middle, which, by the way, can always be reduced in churches to an argument about whether or not we're going to trust God this month. That part in the middle gets left out and we're left with the first 10 chapters of Numbers, a census. Who was there? How much money do we have? Which motions pass? Which babies will be baptized? And when the next meeting will occur? We cannot tame the wilderness that is inevitable when resources seem scarce and we can't 
easily agree on how to use them, but we can bring order to how it is all remembered. And that, maybe, is why a detailed census was ordered, even while water was scarce. Moses was looking for it in rocks. The people were so restless that a rebellion erupted. And leadership was so limited that 70 elders had to be quickly recruited to aid Moses. And it's here, just when the chaotic wilderness appeared to be tamed, and the 70 new elders were gathered in the tent, away from the camp, that a portion of the Holy Spirit reserved for Moses was given to those elders. And it was intended to be a solemn, structured, and modest service. Their desire for order was apparent from every angle. They knew who was chosen and who was left out. They were inside a tent, protected from the weather, which was arbitrary. They were still sitting in one spot, not traveling. They had a system for registration to fill the perfect Hebrew number of 70 seats. And even when the Holy Spirit arrived, they all said something, a prophetic word, but not too much. It was all in order, arranged, organized, protected, predictable, and modest. It was all in order until God got out the tent, which was not supposed to happen. They were registered, but you know, I don't know why Medad and Eldad, they, they didn't make it to the tent. They were registered to be there, but we can only guess why they were absent. I know some rabble-rousers, and the rabble-rousers I know, the people who aggravate the establishment and annoy the religious aristocracy and cause us to reconsider the stuff we thought was fundamental, the Medads and Eldads that I know were registered to go to the sacred ceremony for the chosen 70, but they stopped on their way to the tent to be with somebody who doesn't get picked for much. The Medads and the Eldads, I know, they, they were registered to go to the sacred ceremony for the chosen 70, but, but they lost track of time exploring the wilderness and noticing how if you looked close enough, God was there in the dry sand, in the hot sun, in the rocky side of the mountain. And the Medads and the Eldads, I know, they, they were registered to go to the camp meeting that, that is now called Montreat. And, and they were dressed to go to the church where I serve in Columbia. And they explored attending seminary and they thought about joining us. But when they arrived and they looked inside, they heard some 
prophecy like the Holy Spirit was trying to show up, but it was modest. Just a little. Not too much. Like the people inside were afraid of what might happen to them if the Holy Spirit got loose for more than one Sunday each year. You know, until I began to prepare for this morning's conversation, I did not consider that Pentecost was the day that a certain subspecies of human being that oftentimes includes me had the sound of their judgy, tattletailing voices drowned out by the sound of God. And I know that subspecies well. They are my people. Even though I'm a preacher, if you catch me on the right day, or let's just be straight, on any day, I will be right there with them, with all the wallflowers and the naysayers and the cynics and the self-appointed superheroes and the Joseph son of nuns, assistant to Moses, convinced that God sent us to remind the whole wide world that God is in the tent and the Holy Spirit is too special for all the Meldads and the, all the Medads and the Eldads that, that keep getting stuck outside. They call us snipers of the Holy Spirit. But it is true. That's the good news. Moses said, so it is true. Pentecost was the birth of the church and it was the day that we lost the right to reduce anyone to a measure of our feeble, self-interested, meager minds can manage. Medad and Eldad aren't here with us, which is good news for you. Because now you know that when you are not here in the tent, God is with you. Medad, Eldad, they were you and me. On our very best days, they are you and me and willing to let God do something new. And we might not understand how God got out of the tent. And when we don't understand, it is so easy to deny what does not meet our expectations. But please, friends, allow yourself the mercy to not know why or how, but to say, what does this mean that God got out the tent? And when you ask that question, be careful. There are snipers of the Holy Spirit eagerly waiting to reduce the eternal work of God to nothing. Ignore them. Don't let them quench your spirit. God is doing something new. God got out the tent. 